0: All right, well we're up to uh, part three in our conflict series and um, it'd be interesting if I actually did a survey of you all and handed out a sheet today you had to do a tick and flick sheet whether uh, you've actually handled conflict differently in the last couple of weeks or not or whether you've understood it better. I hope that you have. Uh, last week we spent quite a bit of time in uh, James chapter 4 and I want to start again today by, by reading that. And today basically uh, what I'm uh, planning to give you is I'm planning to give you some really Uh, specific nuts and bolts. Last week, I I hope you saw a whole bunch of nuts and bolts today. It's going to be a whole bunch of nuts and bolts as well as to handle conflict. And hopefully uh, we end up with a whole bunch of project peacemakers. If you come to the project, that's kind of the plan. So let's uh, have a look at James chapter 4, verse 1 to 10. James says this. Peter needs to turn his remote on. James says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst, among you? And we looked at this last week and basically came to the point where we said the reason why people fight is because something that they want rules their heart and they don't get it, so they fight about it. All right? And James goes to the point where he actually says uh, that they actually murder each other in the sense of hatred. Is it not this that so your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell on us, but he gives more grace. It gives more kindness. It gives more help. It gives more patience. It gives more forgiveness. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. It's something that doesn't get said much in our society, isn't it? <laughs> Be upset. S- start crying. <laughs> about some stuff, about the right stuff. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. So today what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to give you five steps in handling conflict. Step number one is this. Step number one is self-examination. As I said last week, the instinct, the reflex action for all of us is to uh, think, it's your fault, you're actually doing this to me and if you just sort yourself out, I'll be fine. James is saying, no, what you need to do is you need to look inside and you need to examine yourself. You need to diagnose the disease. Jesus himself actually said, uh, said this, he said, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, the reality about sin is that sin deceives. And the very definition of deceit is that, or someone being deceived, is that they don't know they're deceived. So you can expect when you get in the middle of conflict that there's a pretty strong chance you've probably got some messy kind of thing going on in your heart and it's actually going to trick you and you're not going to see what you need to see. So what you need to do is, part of handling the conflict well, is you're going to need to examine yourself. And sometimes that's going to mean you call a timeout. You say, timeout. Now, most people in a conflict situation, if they hear someone's calling a timeout, they think, well, they're just going to marshal the troops, they're going to get some more ammo, you know, they need a couple of more ammo belts. And then they're going to come back and it's going to be a mess, right? But the truth is, biblically, the wisdom would say, pull away from it, pull away from the intensity of it and go and examine yourself. You see, James actually says um, in uh, in verse 1 to 3 there that uh, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. But then when you do ask, you don't get it because you're just trying to get what you want. That's a really interesting thing in a conflict situation. In conflict situations, we tend to either not pray or pray for what we want. And God's not going to give you the thing that rules your heart because He wants to be the thing ruling your heart. He would not be a good dad if He actually gave you the thing that you wanted. So how do you pray when you're in the midst of conflict? Do you? Maybe we should start there. Do you pray? And when you do, how do you pray? You know, it's not uncommon for people in conflict to really get a, a deep appreciation for God's justice as a judge. You get what I'm saying? So like, God, I thank you that you're going to get them. <laughs> you know, God, I just I pray I pray the lightning bolts down on them right now. I say, God, they just really need to learn some stuff from you, and and uh, we just all of a sudden God's justice is one of His character qualities that comes out, and you just kind of think, man, I just worship you, God, for your justice, and and the truth is. We're blind. We don't actually see things properly. And and one of the reasons for this is what I mentioned earlier is that people get blinded by sin. Sin deceives. And we actually see this in uh, Hebrews chapter 3. Um, In Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says that people, Christians ought to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So let me ask you this question. Who do you go to when you're in the midst of conflict for help and for advice? Is it someone that would be prepared to disagree with you? Because you need to have some people like that. You need to have people, regardless of their age, who are prepared to say, "No, nah, that's a heap of junk, man. The way that you're going is not the right way to go. Now, I'm telling you, that's going to be a pretty bold person because people typically in conflict situations are pretty fired up, all right? And the way that people work in conflict situations is I've got to go and find myself a posse because I've found an evil person who's wrecked my life and they need to be hung, all right? So, and I can't do it on my own, so I'm going to need about five or six of you, right? So what typically happens is we go out and we find the people that say yes to us and agree with us and are going to support us and join us, you know, in this rallying cry where we start banging on doors and saying, you evil person, you must be torn down. And actually, I mean, if you've seen the kids' movie Horton Hears a Who... I mean, that happens big time at the end of Horton. Here's a who. All right? So, my suggestion to you is take time out, examine yourself, and go and talk to someone who's prepared to disagree with you. I'm blessed by uh, being in a partnership in the church here with Nathan and Diff, both of whom are significantly younger than me, but both of whom ignore that very fact and tell me when they think I'm wrong. All right? And that's what you need, isn't it? That's what you need. You need someone to say, look, Peter, you just seriously, I don't need... What planet are you living on right now? Because that's just not the way that it's happening. Or what did you do that for? You need that. Now, the other thing uh, that complicates things in self-examination is human beings have a tendency to want to cover sin, don't they? Now, this is really interesting. I was thinking about this the other day and your mind, I hope, doesn't work like mine most of the time, right? But I was sitting around and I was thinking, if you could get evil, right and you could put it in a pile on the floor, what would it what would it look like, you know? Now, I'm not saying that you can, but what would that actually look like? It'd be kind of a riding mass of something that would just be trying to get out and touch everything all the time and just corrupt everything, wouldn't it? And I thought, especially when it's, you know, if it's your evil, like if you could get all the evil out of you and put it in a pile on the floor, it would be pretty embarrassing, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know that would be embarrassing okay and there 's what I think is a natural tendency to say well someone 's got to cover that thing up you know and it 's a bit like that with us when we when we mess things up there 's this impulse inside of us that, we've, it, that that stuff needs to be covered and I agree your stuff does need to be covered, but when you go to uh, psalm thirty two there 's this interesting um, comparison that, that, that David makes in the psalm and I was just kind of meditating on a little bit this week in my time with God I've actually written a bit of a blog about it so you'll see that in a couple of weeks but um, it's, it's absolutely fascinating so I just want, want to show you that uh, part of uh, the psalm just from verse 1 to 5 listen to this uh, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven whose sin is covered Now you know what that's true Isn't it? Like if we had some sort of machine that we could just literally plug an HDMI cable into your spine somewhere, right? And up on the screen came up every evil thing that you've done in your life. There would be an impulse in you that would just say, I just want to cover that. I want to turn turn the projector off. I don't want people to see it, right? So it is a blessing if someone is prepared to cover your sin. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Now notice this, uh, David's backtracking here. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Do you see what's going on? David's trying to cover his sin. He's trying to, to just cover the shame and the embarrassment of his failures. But what does he say next? He says, but I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What makes conflict so complicated is when people are absolutely determined and driven to cover their sin. That's not your job. Everyone hear me today? It is not your job to cover sin. That's God's job. And in fact, this Psalm tells you that you can't do it. You can try, but ultimately you can't do it. That writhing, filthy, embarrassing, shameful mess underneath your tarp will get out from under the tarp. And and it, it, it just will, because it does every time. But you know what happens? If you let God do his job, if you uncover... See, what David's saying here is his job is to uncover to God and God's job is to cover. So don't take God's job on. Don't don't try and be the one covering. You just be the one that does what God says. You just come clean and tell me. Tell me the stuff that you've done. Confess and turn from it and admit to it and let me cover it. If we carried that into conflict situations, that would actually bring about quite a large degree of uh, diffusing of the heat of the situations. Because I don't have to defend myself anymore. God defends me. And he defends me, not because I'm perfect and i got it all right. He defends me because he forgives me and he cleans up my messes. So here's a critical question. At the end of each of these steps, there'll be a critical question. In a conflict situation, you need to ask yourself this. What do you actually want right now more than Jesus? And how are you acting to get it? Good question. Step two is to repent intelligently. James says, you adulterous people... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The the biblical idea of repentance is, is one of turning. You're turning 180 degrees and you're heading in another direction. It's going to involve confession, asking for forgiveness from God, and James here in James chapter 4 is calling people to repent or to turn from their spiritual adultery. They found something else to, to rule their hearts. There was another want, another desire that they loved more than God. And he says, you need to turn around from that and head in a different direction. You see, the truth is, and you can actually spin this around, it sounds like James is kind of beating people over the head and saying, you've got to repent, all right? But read between the lines. He's just set up there that God's jealous, Yet, all jealousy is not wrong. All right. I often ask students at school here, I say, do you think there's any jealousy that would be good? And they kind of go, oh, not really. Well, you know what? If some dude started moving in on my wife, would it be appropriate for me to be jealous? Would, would there be something wrong if I wasn't jealous? Yeah, something, something wrong big time. Because that is a reflection of love. So whenever God says to you, I'm really cranky and I'm really jealous, you've got to hear, He loves you. He loves you and He actually wants your heart. He he wants your heart all to Himself. He doesn't want anyone else to have it. He doesn't want any other thing to have it. He doesn't want any other want or desire to have it. He wants it just for Himself. I mean, biblically, there's, there's kind of the idea, and it's kind of weird when you're a dude, right? But biblically, the idea is that you're married to God. Alright? It's a bit weird for some of us, right? But that's biblically the idea, okay? And that's why here, James calls it adultery. You see, God's a jealous lover, isn't He? And He won't let you share your affections with anyone else. But when we humble ourselves, He gives more grace. When we say sorry, He gives more grace. He doesn't just let us stray. If God let you stray and he let your heart be dominated by a want or a desire that you have, and he did nothing about it, that would probably be some pretty good evidence that he doesn't love you. He doesn't let that happen, though. He chases you and he pursues you. You see, the the bottom line is that the way that you actually get out of spiritual adultery is not by someone whacking you over the head and saying you need to repent. It's actually by seeing how great God is. You see, the more dazzling God's grace is, the more pathetic your God replacements look. And I'll say this to you. If you're sitting there now and you just kind of go, well, my love for God's cold, you know what? I'm just just putting it out there. You don't get him. You don't understand him. Often as Christians, we sit there and we go, I've heard this a thousand times and I understand it. If it does nothing for you, you don't understand it. How many times have you had a preacher stand up in church and say, God loves you, and you say, yeah, I know. But if you go to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians says that you, you can't understand the depth of God's love. You see, so a genuine heart response that says, I, I can't get it. I, I can't. Well, I know that he loves me a bit. I, I know a little bit about that, but I, I, I don't get it because it's actually really, really deep and it's amazing and it's really, really profound. So what does repentance look like, according to uh, James? Well, this is what he, uh, he says. He says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There's some pretty good specific... Uh, suggestions there about how you actually need to repent and what that would actually look like so critical question for step two in conflict what specifically do i need to repent of what do i need to ask for in terms of grace what was what has hijacked my heart and what do i need to see and believe about jesus you see romans 2 says the thing that actually brings about change is the kindness of god and so you need to see the kindness of God. That's, what brings about change is not beating someone over the head ultimately, although people need to get a really clear conviction of their sin. What actually brings about change is, uh, is the kindness of God and seeing how God deals with me and the love of God. Step number three, consider the other person. You see, James chapter 4, verse 2 says that... Uh, What we want actually blinds us to our neighbor. Our ruling desires blinds us to our neighbor. So if you look in verse 2 there, it says, uh, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You lose sight of them. All right? You lose sight of people. Well, you know what happens when you actually reorient your first love to Christ is you start to love your neighbor again. That's how it works. And you get in a conflict situation, you're just going to think, I just want to win my side of the fight. And you're not even thinking about the other person. You get Jesus back in the right place and realise how much he loves you and all of a sudden you've got the opportunity where you can actually start thinking about the other person. Check this verse out from 1 Peter 3 verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. This is really Peter saying, understand, Think about the other person. Consider the other person. You know what Peter's really saying? Imagine being married to yourself. All right? (laughs) Imagine what that's like. Now, typically in conflict situations, that's very difficult to do. All right? Because you get in this point scoring thing, you just want to win it. All right? But James is saying, listen, you've just got to get rid of the blindness to the other person and just stop and think about what it's like to live with you right now. To be your husband. To be your friend. What's that like? Some of you are going, oh, don't want to think about that. Maybe some of you are going, man, the luckiest person on earth. (laughs) (laughs) Critical question for step three. What's your experience as you enter in a conflict with me right now? Is it a good experience or a bad one? See, self-examine, repent, then stop and think about the other person. How are they going right in the midst of this conflict situation? What are they feeling? What do they want? What are they struggling with? Pause. Just take a pause. Check that out. Step four. We're making good time today, aren't we? Move toward the other person in love. You see, deep and thorough repentance and faith actually takes you out of the centre of things and enables you to see those around you more fully you actually begin to see things about the other person that you didn't see before. And some of these are are listed on the screen there. You you still see their sin, but you actually start to see their struggles. You see their temptations, you see their weaknesses. As they're struggling with you, you actually start to see some of these other things going on. And at that point, you've actually got the choice as to whether you're going to serve or whether you're going to demand that you be served in the conflict situation. And you know what? Jesus' death on the cross makes it possible for you, in a conflict situation where someone's hurt you very, very badly, to serve them. Because he did. He served people who hurt him. He served people who killed him. And you can do that. I mean, there's no more aggressive conflict situation than being crucified in the first century. That's, that's pretty much a pinnacle. All right? And in the midst of that, he loves and he serves, so I ask you this question: How do you love and serve someone in the midst of conflict? Now, the typical response that I've had for probably most of my life, and that I think a lot of Christians actually have is uh, loving someone means just being a doormat, and letting them do whatever they want, and letting them get away with stuff, and that I mean. If that's your only definition of love, you're going to have a real problem handling conflict in a godly way because it's just going to get really messy for you. Because biblically, love is far more uh, multifaceted than just being a doormat. And let's be honest, there are times when loving someone means that you're going to be a doormat at some level. And it's one of my lines that I used in the project here a while ago. But When you love someone as a doormat, you're like a magic carpet because you're actually trying to take them somewhere being a doormat. Does that make sense? You look at Philippians 2 where it basically talks about how Jesus got trashed and he was a doormat. Well he wasn't just a a stationary doormat, he was through his humility and his doormat ministry taking people to a place they would never have got to if he didn't do that. There's a classic scripture in um, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14 to 18 that actually talks about different facets of love and how people can love each other, and I thought we'd just have a quick uh, look at this one. It says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, the lazy, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So I'm going to go through, I think I've got about, uh, oh geez, there's about six things that Paul says, six ways that you can love people that isn't just being a doormat. Here's the first one. First thing you can do is you can actually warn idle people or warn lazy people. You see, love actually warns people when there are patterns of destructive behaviour. That's what it does. And in this case, in Thessalonians, it looks like there's a bunch of Christians who are going, Jesus is coming back soon. They're getting all uh, eschatologically fired up about stuff. He's coming soon. So they're not working. And Paul's going, get off your backside and get out and work. And for Paul to actually say that is love. He's warning them. You see, when there's a persistent pattern of sin in someone, we're actually actually to move toward them with gentle courage and humility. And some of this is going to need to happen in a conflict situation. The big problem is and the danger here is anyone in a conflict situation or most people in a conflict situation, they all think they're right. But if you've repented, if Jesus is ruling your heart and you're wanting to move toward them in love with humility and gentleness, there's going to be some things that you're going to see and you're just going to need to warn them. There's going to be some patterns in their life that you're going to need to help them out with. Now, you're going to be tiptoeing through the tulips, I can tell you. All right, I'm not saying that's easy, all right, but loving them Sometimes it's gonna mean, hey Jim, you seriously, man. I just I love you and I'm, I'm prepared to take all the hits here, maybe. Maybe you even say that, but there's just something here I reckon that's just messing with you. It's just failing your life up. And you got to you need to have a look at that. So that's the first thing out of Thessalonians. The second thing is that um encouraging the timid. See, one thing that people in conflict need to hear more than anything is that the powerful grace of God is literally with them, and is strong enough to help them through every single facet of that conflict. And I, I could almost guarantee, probably across the church here and for myself, that most of the time when you get in the middle of a conflict situation, and there's that there's an instinct inside of you that's just going, "Oh, I've got to sort this thing out. I've got to, We've got to get to the end," you know, and it's not. God's with me, the grace of God's with me and he's going to carry me through and he's going to make sure that I handle this well and he's, he's, going, to, he's going to help me to handle it, he's going to help me to push through. It may not come to a, a full resolution but it's here, it's here and it's with me. And it's, do you get what I'm saying? Because you get in the middle of it and you just, there's that instinct in you that's just going, oh, I've got to get this done myself. And God's going, no, you need to be reminded that God's with you. And sometimes you're going to be in conflict with people and they're going to need to be reminded, listen, God's actually with you and He wants to help you and He wants to help us. That, that's, and He's going to help us. He's not just wants to, he is going, and He is helping us. And you know what that is? All the time there's a part in the person that's timid about the grace of God and the goodness of God to help them out. And what you're actually doing is you're, is you're emboldening and you're, you're, you're inflaming in a sense that hope that God might actually be for me in this situation. You see, we need to be reminded and we need to remind people that Jesus is a king and he won't stop until everything opposed to him is dismantled. He's not going to be done. You know, I mean, some of you, you probably hit the same kind of conflict situation all the time and there's some kind of issue or malfunction or disorder in your own life, well, you know, this is the really good news. I'm telling you the really good news. God will not give up working on that bit until it's done. He just won't. He's just going to keep going, all right? So, and for some of you, there might be a correction because you're going, pretty happy to just ignore that one, (laughs) all right? Pretty happy not to look at that one. Well, you know what? He's looking at it, okay? You don't want to, but he is. And probably, I mean, we're all a bit like this, aren't we? We just go, okay, God, I'm just going to, Here's your to-do list this week. I'll give you the three things I want you to work on this week. Uh, most of the time, I think he probably just screws it up and throws it in the bin, all right? Go, oh, what do you think you need to work on is not what it needs working on. So this week, we're going to do what I think. He's going to work it to complete maturity. Now, I'll give you one warning. One of my analogies that I often use with people is this, and I've seen it happen so many times in my own life, is that God's taken all of you and you're just like this diamond in the rough, you know, like from... Uh, from Aladdin, that's a long time ago, isn't it? You guys don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just going uh, you're, a, you're just a, a block of material. And, you know, you know, and you've probably heard this a thousand times, but God's actually making a beautiful sculpture out of you. And I actually think that sometimes God gets to uh, bits of the stone or the diamond that are particularly hard. And they're kind of... I mean, I'm a woodworker, right? So one of the things you just don't want to hit when you're doing woodwork is cranky grain, all right? And cranky grain is, is grain that kind of changes direction all the time. It's really hard. No? Most of the time the grain in timber stays in the same direction, so you can, you can just work it and it just works really well. But every now and then you get cranky grain, right? And cranky grain's frustrating because you can go halfway along a piece of timber and then it'll change on you and then you tear out all this timber on the other half and it just drives you nuts, right? But going back to the sculpture analogy, God will build a beautiful sculpture out of you and he's not going to finish until it's done But sometimes he gets to a bit on the stone that's cranky or that's hard. And I'm just here to tell you, and this is actually good news for you. This is not meant to be a rebuke or a correction or anything. He doesn't go necessarily to another part of the sculpture and work on that when he gets to a hard bit. I've often said to people, he just hits harder. All right? (laughs) That's what he does. All right? And one of my prayers uh, for a lot of years uh, through my youth was, God, I just pray that you'd help me to learn the easy way. All right? It's just like, why do I always have to learn the hard way? But he will, because he loves you, right? And this is his grace. He's just going, well, Peter, uh, it's going to, well, I've got to get rid of it. That's not part of the final design. That's why I don't want you to get rid of it. Can you just leave it? I mean, can can we somehow, is that like a beauty spot or something? You know? No, it's not. It's really ugly. So, uh, do you want to, no, not really, you know, and he'll hit harder. With his shaping tools, that's what he'll do. And you know what? Some of you probably underneath you might be thinking, well, that's not going to encourage a timid. Well, it will if you think that being like Jesus is going to be a good thing. All right? That he's not going to give up on you, that he's not going to lose patience with you, he's going to keep going. He's going to bring you to complete maturity. The third thing that uh, is mentioned in uh, 1 Thessalonians there is uh, that loving people means helping the weak. You know, we all need, we've we've all got times, haven't we, in our walk with God, where you just need someone to hold your hand in a sense, maybe not literally. That would be weird if you're like a teenage dude. We're going to have a hand-holding ceremony at the end of this service. We're all going to stand out to, my dad used to do that in church actually, Say, eh? all right, everyone, let's all get in a circle and hold hands. Just go, oh, that's weird. Did they wash them or is it dirty or they pick an earwax out or what were they doing? <coughs> but, you know, there's, figuratively speaking, there's a sense in which uh, we need to hold each other's hands as we grow in the faith. You see, the, uh, the word there that's uh, the original word in the original language for the word that's translated to there is help the weak uh, can be tra- translated as hold on to them, cling to them, put your arm around them. That's another way to love people. And who actually knows? It's, it's actually really, really difficult to change. Because the truth is that You and I, we've got some pretty ingrained stuff, right? If you just come down to things like, oh, you shouldn't get drunk and do drugs and stop swearing and all that sort of stuff, all that sort of stuff is just like all the lilies sitting on the surface, right? You get down to the really hardcore stuff and you're just talking about stuff that's really going to take a long time and a lot of persistence to actually get through it. And, you know, we're just going to need to help each other with that. And that's why the project here, we do community groups. Because you need to be in relationships with people who can hold on to you when it gets a bit ragged, right? Life gets a bit ragged for, uh, for most of us here. And you need to be in a context where you've got relationships with people where they can look out for you. Number four, or the fourth way that you can actually love people, according to Thessalonians, is uh, to be patient. How long are you prepared to wait for someone to change? How long? Okay, you give them three shots? Let's go, that was it, man. We had three fights about that. I'm done with it. You. you didn't change? You're probably having a fight with someone or bumping into someone because you've got this ingrained kind of personality thing going on that's just dodgy and it's bad, right? And anything that's connected to your personality and you've just been replaying that over and over and over is going to take a lot of work to get it out. Are you comfortable with the fact that sometimes God's going to take a decade to change you? I mean... Who here knows that there's been things in their life that's actually taken at least 10 years to actually bring about significant change? Okay, so we've got some hands up, right? So you know what that tells you? There's some people in this church who you're going to have to walk with them for 10 years with some stuff that irritates you. So the way that you love people like that is to be patient with them, all right? Because they're just as bad as you are, all right? We're kind of all in this together. You see, we're to warn and encourage and help one another for a really, really long time. You know, We're pretty good at saying this thing. We go, oh, look, I did all this stuff, and I, I put myself out big time for the last three weeks, and nothing happened. They didn't change at all. Let's go, well, welcome to God's world. <laughs> all right? That's what he has to deal with, right? I mean, imagine if God said, listen, Peter, I'm giving you three shots. All right? <laughs> three strikes, and you're out. If you don't get this right in three, I'm done with you. None of us would probably be in church, Agreed, We just wouldn't be here. But God's not like that. He's got a long-term view and he's very, very patient with you. I mean, some things can get messy. And Jesus makes some really specific comments about how to handle conflict in the church. And we're going to have a conflict in the church message at the start of next term. Because there's some pretty clear ways that we'd love to follow um, regarding conflict in the church uh, for the project here, and they pretty much come straight out of Jesus, right? Which is why, here we go, opinionated Sondergeld's going to come out here. This is why you shouldn't ship around and go to a thousand different churches, and this is why you should submit to the leadership in the church, right? Because Jesus said that if you get in a conflict and you can't get it resolved, you should get them involved, all right? So you become part of somewhere and you entrust the resolution of some conflicts that you have to the leadership of the church. You don't just go here, there and everywhere, all right? And I don't think you even go to one church and another church and you kind of swap around and you go, you know, you get up in the morning you kind of psych like orange juice, you know, I feel like apple and mango today, today I feel like orange, all right? You don't do that and this is one of the reasons why you don't do it is because Jesus wants the leaders in the church to help you with the conflict that happens, all right? So you go to someone who you've got the conflict with, you try and sort it out. And if you can't get it sorted out, what you do is you go and you get a couple of people from the church. All right? And you go back to them, right? Because the whole time you're trying to win them over. And they're just going, nah, you're an idiot, you're a loser, I'm not up for that. Not that people say that really, but they kind of think that a bit probably underneath. And then you come back to the church and you start to get the leadership involved. You know, not so that you can get people in trouble, right? Because cowboys here are just going, oh, yes, won't that be sweet? we can get some heavy hitters in and we can just really give them a good serve. It's not about that. It's about bringing restoration and reconciliation between two people or however many people the conflict is happening with. So uh, make sure you hear the first week and next term. That should be an interesting one for you. And the, uh, the fifth one out of uh, First Thessalonians about how you love people is actually to reject revenge. Do you see that up there? Make sure that no one repays evil for evil. You see, love rejects revenge and it practices forgiveness, doesn't it? You see, instinctively in conflict situations, we tend to start giving up hope, we can become self-righteous and we can get really angry. We can say things like, I can't ever forgive them for what they did. And uh, just personal kind of anecdote here. Uh, my dad's been a pastor my whole life and my dad's preached about forgiveness lots and lots and lots of times. But I don't think forgiveness has its full effect unless people understand that God is a just God and he's going to make sure that things are fair and that they're sorted out. I mean, Romans chapter 12 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. See, the impulse in a conflict situation, especially when you've been legitimately hurt and you've been made a victim of something that's nasty and painful and hurtful, is that you become, or you want to become, some kind of mercenary that's actually going to go out and and settle the score. But mercenaries don't actually do a very good job at settling scores. Judges do. Impartial judges do. And God says to you, He says, I am going to make sure that all wrongdoing gets squared up. So you just need to trust me. Your job is to love the needy. Your job is to forgive. You just forgive and you just let me settle the score. I'll make sure it's all fair because I know everything. And then the last bit of uh, 1 Thessalonians there is that uh, Paul talks about the fact that he really is talking about worship. He's saying rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks. All of that's kind of uh, worship kind of terminology. So here's your critical question for step four. What will it look like to wisely love the person in conflict with me? Will I warn, encourage or help? Step five. Make a plan, alright? You get in a rough and tough kind of, it's like being in a clothes dryer, you know, being in a conflict often, especially if you're a turtle and you're having conflict with a cowboy, right? And it's just going to, you know, you're going to get disoriented. So make a good plan. And here's some Components I think you should have as part of your plan. Understand the problem. It probably helps if you actually, if both parties get together and name what the issue is. Often in conflict situations, the issue is different. When the issue is different, that's a really helpful thing to know, alright? Because you're going into bat for your thing and they're thinking it's something else. So both parties need to name it and let's do one at a time, Okay? Most of us probably been in a conflict situation where it just kind of fires up and all of a sudden we've got a pile of 35 grievances all on top of each other and you're kind of going, well, there's no chance now we may as well duke it out. All right, let's have a good time we're at it and see if I can be the one left standing at the end. Don't do that, right? Just go one at a time. Do some uh, self-examination. Work through the questions that are the critical questions I've thrown out to you today. Work through those on your own. This one, seek and grant forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness and be willing to grant it. This is absolutely critical, right? There's nothing that's a fire hydrant, kind of fire extinguisher kind of thing than actually saying sorry to someone. So I just want to spend a couple of minutes on this. I think people have got some absolutely terrible apologies that they use. All right, let me give you a couple. Here's the first one. Oh look, Look, I'm sorry it bothered you so much. What does that say? Yeah, it's still your fault. You're just really soft and you need to get over it. Alright? Really sorry it bothered you. What about this one? I'm sorry if I hurt you. I didn't mean to. Hey, rubbish. Yes, you did. Alright? Don't say you didn't mean to. What about this one? I'm sorry you're upset. It's like I'm, I'm cool with everything I did, but I wish you weren't crying right now. Alright? What about this one? I'm sorry that you feel that way. Well, if I could just change your mind about it and about the way that you feel would be right. What about this one? I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Well, you probably did most of the time. All right? You just don't like the pain of what's actually happening at the moment that someone's upset with you. And this one, this one's a classic one. Uh, Forgive me for reacting when you were... And then you just kind of take your chance, you get your highlighter out and you just go, this is what you were doing. Forgive me for reacting to your evil. You know, you're not sorry at all. Well, and then the demanding kind of questions that we have, like, well, do you forgive me for getting angry? Come on, do you? Do you? And then we have uh, engagements like this where we kind of say things like, uh, I'm sorry, and then the other person goes, that's fine. And you go, okay. You know, and you... Have you ever been to one of those? You go, I know that it's not fine. I know it's not okay. They say, no, that's okay. But it's not okay, all right? You haven't actually dealt with the nuts and bolts of what was going on there. So let me give you three components I think should be part of an apology. First one's this. I reckon you should name the wrong. Okay? Name the wrong. I had to do this with a parent on the phone just recently. They were upset about something I did. It was true, I did it, and it was wrong, all right? So almost before he could even start, I said, can you just let me talk for a little bit first? He goes, here's, here's what I did. I said, it was wrong. Just name it, put it out there, all right? Now, the cool thing about this is if you do that, the other person's got a shot to say, oh, can you, can you just let me tweak it a little bit? Because as far as I saw it, there was something else going on there as well. The second one's this you need to have a component that recognises the effect of what's happened and saying sorry fits there, alright? Now, if you haven't said sorry to someone in the last week, you're not saying sorry enough, alright? Because I can guarantee that in the last week, you've done something that's upset someone or you haven't loved someone the way you should have loved them and you should have said sorry to them. And this, this would be the point... At which you say that, right? You just say, look, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry for the effect that it actually that, that it had on you. Now the interesting thing about this is that there's people that haven't said sorry for like decades. Maybe some of you are those. That'd be interesting. When was the last time you said sorry to someone? Now, not in a flippant way, but in a serious way. Now what's difficult here is that often what happens is this becomes the last stop of our apology. And I, I'm a big believer in this. This may be a little controversial, but I think there needs to be a further step that takes place. Alright? And the further step is this. When you hurt someone, you actually create a deficit or a debt with them. And when you're wanting to sort something out with them, you actually need them to release you from the debt that you've created. And so I don't think sorry is enough. I mean, sorry can kind of communicate it, but I don't think sorry is enough because you actually need to get forgiveness from the other person. You need to request that the debt be forgiven and the the weird thing about this is that some of you guys find it really difficult to say sorry. Try asking for forgiveness. Man, you know, you see all those TV shows where someone's got to say sorry and they go, you know, (laughs) they just can't get the word sorry out of their mouths. Try saying please forgive me because you know what actually happens is when you offend someone, there's been a power imbalance. Right? You've taken power over them and you've actually hurt them. When you ask for forgiveness, there's a reversal of the power. You see that? And all of a sudden, the person who was the offender now is the powerless person to actually get forgiveness. That is a really sweet moment. All right, That is a really sweet moment, especially for people that you've hurt. But you know what? And sometimes, like we teach our kids to do this, we say... Uh, you need to name the wrong. I'm sorry for doing such and such. Please forgive me. And sometimes my boys will go, no. Nah. <laughs> all right? And you know, sometimes, and, and the other boy goes, oh, what's going on? He's supposed to forgive me, right? I'm just going, well, he's pretty hurt by it. So he just want, need a little bit of time to forgive you. And in that moment, this guy who thinks he can just get forgiveness easily, all of a sudden just going, oh, geez. So it's just not, a, I just shouldn't take it for granted. Because it, it's just not a given that I'm going to get forgiveness. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how it should be, you know. And sometimes you might do something, you might have done something, that hurt someone so badly that they're kind of thinking, I'm never going to forgive you. And you know what? They, they mightn't. True? But that doesn't mean that you can't go and ask for their forgiveness and humble yourself and, uh, and reverse that, that, that power thing and, and, and keep offering it. And keep moving toward them in love. So the third part there is to request a transaction between you and the other person. Please forgive me. I find that really, really difficult. But you know what? I'm just telling you two weeks ago, I did it on the phone with this parent. I said, I did what you said. wasn't as bad as it was reported, but I did what you said. shouldn't have done it. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the effect that it caused to you and your family. And I'm just asking if you'd forgive me. And he did. How good is that? It's kind of how it's meant to work. All right? But it's hard. I mean, forgiveness is really, I think as Tim Keller says, forgiveness is uh, is a a call to suffer. Because it's like you're absorbing the evil that someone else has done to you and you're not passing it on. Step four, five, and six. Step four is explore possible solutions with the other person to the conflict. All right, implement a solution, uh, answer questions like how will you do it, uh, who will do what, when will you review it, and then ev- evaluate it and uh, get outside help if you need it. All right, there's some pretty concrete things that you can do. This will be up on the, uh, the website, so you can download this if you, uh, if you want to get the steps in there. And I want to finish here. I said in the first conflict message that our greatest conflict issue is actually with God himself. And it is. And I hope you've seen that. Because when you get that one squared away, relationship to neighbour and love for neighbour gets squared away as well. And so I want to read a section out of Romans chapter 5. You know, Romans is clear that we were enemies with God. If you're not a Christian, you don't love Jesus, you're God's enemy. You're his enemy right now. So you've got the option today, you've got the option every day to lay down your arms and stop being his enemy. But you know what would happen if, if no one ever did anything, God and us would be like the Israelis and the Palestinians. All right? And we'd just keep blowing each other up. All right? Except we'd never get to blow God up because that doesn't work. All right? You can't blow him up. But the bottom line is, it would just be like that. You know? Like you just... You just send a few rockets over and then God would send a few rockets back and, you just, and he'd be justified in doing his stuff, all right, because we're the ones that are kind of getting everything wrong, but we're not justified in sending ours back. You know what happens in a situation like the Israelis and the Palestinians is someone actually has to break the deadlock. And do you know what needs to happen, I think, I believe, is the, pers- the first person to break the deadlock is the one that has to absorb most of the evil. That's just how it works. You don't get out of conflict until someone's prepared to forgive and absorb evil that's happening. Listen to this. This is Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see this? God's going, I have a deadlock here with these humans. We're enemies. So I'm going to do something. I'm going to break the deadlock. Since then, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, which means made right by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. You know what reconcile means? Reconcile comes from a Latin word which means uh, to bring together. It means to restore friendly relations between people. So when the Bible here says that God reconciles you to himself, he's reconciling friendliness between you and him. He's bringing you together. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is what it's all about. You fix vertical, you fix horizontal most of the time. All right? Sometimes it ends up unresolved but you fix horizontal most of the time. And that's ultimately the fuel in the tank of handling conflict is to deal with the conflict between you and God. And the beauty of it is, according to Romans up there on the screen, is it actually wasn't you doing anything. It was him doing everything. It was him breaking the deadlock.